why is it that the Western mind is, is that we choose the struggle when we can choose the easy way out? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. The answer is, is because we have been taught to struggle. That this is a generational tragedy. One generation of humans after another generation of humans teaches their children to be miserable. And so it's it's good to meet you. I'm uh, uh, I was actually raised in the deep south myself, as you can tell from my accent. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I pretty well know I've been in I've lived in four years more more than four years in Oklahoma and Texas and South Carolina and North Carolina. So I know the areas pretty well. I've lived in Texas and South Carolina myself. Okay. So, uh, we were beginning to talk about Anapanasati and what are the key ingredients that many people miss. Um, and that part of the reason that people miss it is partly because of the fact that Anapanasati as a practice has a, uh, a formal theoretical base to it. And that formal theoretical base is called the Satipatthana, or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Because of that Four Foundations of Mindfulness has typically always been the uh, uh, earth for the body, uh, water for the feelings, fire for the mind, and air for the mental thoughts. That sequence has been um, the way that the Buddha taught it, that's the way that, that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa normally teaches it, is taking it in that sequence. However, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is also very careful to point out things that the Buddha didn't point out, so it must have been kind of common knowledge that didn't quite make it into the suttas. As that is, is that you don't practice Anapanasati the way that it's presented. It is presented in a formal manner, but it's to be practiced in an informal manner, and the informal manner that Anapanasati is to be practiced actually is more specified as the way that you practice the Eightfold Noble Path. So when you apply the Eightfold Noble Path to Anapanasati, the whole sequence changes around. So that we look at it the, uh, from the Eightfold Noble Path, and most specifically, we, uh, the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Noble Path as right noble unification of mind with its support and features. Right unification of mind actually is the goal. Now in the Pali, it's called uh, Sama Area Samati. And in Western Buddhism, the word Samati has been uh, wrongly translated as concentration. But in fact, uh, what Samati is, is in some cases exactly opposite to concentration. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, concentration is automatic, is often considered closing down and getting down to the essence. Samati is in fact gathering together the factors that are appropriate and are needed. An example of this would be uh, a Western uh, a Native American teepee. 
You know the TP. Mm -hmm. You've probably even been in a TP. Okay. We know that the TP is built because it's got a number of ridge poles, at least four, but the more the better, and that the ridge poles are uh, at the base around the TP, and they all merge at the top at one point where the, all of the TP poles are tied together, right? Mm -hmm. At the top of the TP. That would be the Samati, where everything comes together. Now, a lot of people would say, yeah, that means that all the poles are concentrated all in that one point. And I can say, yes, that's one way of talking about concentration. But normally we think of concentration in, in a different way. And that way would be. Imagine. Frozen concentrated orange juice. Nobody drinks frozen concentrated orange juice. Why would anybody want to buy frozen concentrated orange juice? You can't drink it. You have to make it samati. You can't use it as a concentrate. You've got to put the water back in it before you drink it, right? Mm -hmm. Right? They only take the water out of it for transportation purposes, not for usage. If you understand that, then we can get a be much better understanding of what the actual practice of Anapanasati is, which is more of an opening of the mind rather than a closing down or a tightening of the mind that we get an idea of when we use the word concentration. We also have words like going deep into meditation. You've probably heard those kind of words before. Mm -hmm. They also talk about it in the sense that the longer you sit, the better. Two hours is not enough. Sit for three. This is the kind of way that they look at it. This is not what the Buddha was recommending. This is not what we were practicing. And that um, we can get to it a little bit more. But first, let's look at the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view means, uh, or especially right noble view, means that we're doing an investigation. That in fact, he calls, he talks uh, in the sutta, the Buddha talks about it, is uh, the fact, the facility of investigation, the wisdom factor, the factor of uh, inspection, investigation. Now, that's actually quite opposite of people when they think about going deep into meditation, which means you're closing a bunch of stuff off. But when we're doing an investigation, we want to investigate everything, we want to open it up, we want to take a really a uh, good broad look at what's going on. The next one, uh, and so this is where right view comes first. Now, later we'll talk about what is wrong view and what is ordinary right view versus what is um, uh, noble right view. But let's just talk about it in the sense that um, normally an individual will have a viewpoint. They see things from their own personal perspective. And because of that, we're missing out on a whole lot of data, a whole lot of information. It would be better to be able to take other people's perspective and other people's points of view and put their data into the mix also. In fact, the American Indians had a phrase, walk a mile in my shoes. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we know what that actually means. It means that if I'm actually walking a mile in this guy's shoes and I have a feeling for what his shoes feel like, and the mile probably is his mile too. 
So we're talking about it in the sense of basically we could say then that this is um, in Christianity, the golden rule that Jesus taught. Do unto others the way you want to be done to yourself. But in Buddhism, it's even more sophisticated than that in the sense that we want to treat other people the way they want to be treated, which means now we have to investigate to find out what they like and what they want so that we can be pleasing to them rather than giving them a gift that we want them to have. We uh, give them a gift that they want to have. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is what we mean by correct investigation is one's right view. The second thing to come along is right sati. Normally, sati is translated as mindfulness, and because of that, it makes everything confused. But in fact, um, the word mindfulness is kind of ridiculous anyway, because I never even heard of the word mindfulness without it being in context of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Okay, in that case, <clears throat> that meant that it had no universally well-known definition outside of Buddhism, which means that when people come to Buddhism, they've got to kind of figure out what this word means because it doesn't have any meaning for them already. I think that this is part of the reason why Buddhism is such a, a mess in the West is because of this mistranslations of some of the key words. So we've already got samati <clears throat> uh, correctly translated. So let's look at this idea of what sati means. Sati actually means to remember, and we use that in a way of waking up. In the sense to wake up to be here now in this present moment. So when you wake up, first wake up in the morning, when you're in bed and you first wake up, what's the very first thing that happens? Is that you're aware that you're not asleep. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the wake up. We begin to wake up in the sense that we know something. This is, in fact, what that wake up call is. And so the wake up or to remember means to remember that we're going to practice. Remember to look at what's going on, to remember <clears throat> to apply our right view and to do a bit of investigation. Okay. We'll fit this in Diana Padasati soon enough. The next one is one's right effort. And this is the key ingredient that's missing in Western meditation more than anything else. And that is, is that people are not taking the right noble effort. Most of them are either putting in the wrong effort in the sense of not enough effort, like in choiceless awareness or sometimes in the noting, and then other people work too hard at it. They strain, they struggle. I'm not getting what I want out of meditation. Now let me try and struggle harder. And neither one of these things are going to be successful. And so there's a there's an, uh, a midpoint in there that is one's right effort. Now I'll also say that the effort uh, in the beginning is bigger because we have not been in the habit of making the effort. And so it's going to be like a new skill to be developed. But once we get the skill developed, then the effort becomes almost effortless. But in the beginning, we have to actually take the effort 
the right effort. Now, what is then to be done with one's right effort? And this is the place where most of them miss. In the Mahasi method, they do noting. You've probably heard about that, okay? The noting, of, and, and so the question is, well, what do you note? The answer is whatever occurs, right? Note whatever's there. The Buddha would say that is going to take you into a pretty dark place, a terrible place, a dark night of the soul, maybe, if you practice that way. Mm-hmm. That there is another way of practice, and that other way of practice is the way of the Buddha and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and surprisingly enough, the way of Mahasi also. But in fact, what we have as Mahasi method in the West is not what Mahasi Saradar taught. The Mahasi Saradar that died in 1982 was much closer to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And he was not particularly magical. But what he did teach, in fact, that is right, is is that the mind must be free from hindrances before the noting is done. Which is exactly what we're talking about here, that one's right effort means that we have to uh, remove unwholesome thoughts of the mind and put wholesome thoughts into the mind. And now we're beginning to understand that that's exactly what is in Anapanasati Sutta. Step number nine of Anapanasati is to do that investigation that we were just talking about, one's right view and sati. And then step 10 of Anapanasati is to gladden the mind, which means to take the unwholesome things out of the mind and put wholesome things in there, one wholesome thought after another after another. This is the practice of the Buddha. And that we have to actually put some skin in the game. This is an important point about one's right effort, that we actually have to, uh, the Mahasi uh, translations from the Burmese talk about jumping on, falling on, seizing, confronting. These are the words that Mahasi uses, and he talks about it in the sense of your object of meditation. Whatever object of meditation that you have, you just don't observe it or notice it or note it. You grab hold of it. Mm-hmm. You tie it down. You sit on it. You jump on it. That's the difference. That's the problem that the Mahasi method in the West has. And you can also hear that in the sense of um, what they call choiceless awareness, which I think is more Vajrayana in its orientation. Mm-hmm. Okay. What does choiceless awareness mean? That means to be aware of what's going on in the mind, but don't make any choices about it. In other words, if you have all of the right intentions and you're paving your own highway to hell with your own good intentions and you wind up in hell, at least you were practicing correctly the Hmm. Vajrayana. And so, in fact, Vajrayana, the high um, uh, choiceless awareness and noting and those kind of things will oftentimes uh, take the student into a really, really bad state. Because they're not practicing according to the Buddha, according to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and according to the Mahasi. Where all of them talk about that the first thing that has to be done is the removal of the hindrances. 
remove the mind from unwholesome thoughts and to put in the wholesome thoughts. Only then can any progress be made. This is, I can give you so many suttas where this is. In sutta number 10, when it starts into the Dhamma Nupasana, the first thing is there is the hindrances, and each hindrance is mentioned one after another, and the last statement about each of the hindrances is that this hindrance must be removed. In sutta number 39, the Buddha gives a, uh, a long exposition about the hindrances. And in there, he talks about, he gives five analogies of what it's like to be free from the hindrances. And we'll talk about this at another time, but basically what it means is being relief, complete relief. To be free from hindrances is like being out of jail. Being free from hindrances is like being on a long journey and then arriving home. What a relief it is to finally come home. Mm -hmm. And so the hindrances are like wandering around, having work to do, and we do that. We think up work to do, and then we tell ourselves we've got to do it. And so these are all unwholesome thoughts. And if we practice meditation without having the removal of these unwholesome thoughts, we're not going to make much practice or much progress. The very first thing that has to be done is the mind must be free from unwholesome states. So the first thing then that the student needs to do is to develop the skill of, of right view or right sati in the sense of making that determination about what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. What is it that's wholesome? That's something that you're going to have to figure out for yourself. We can give you some guidelines. Okay. An example of that would be sort of like that. We can, we can show you all this various kind of luggage, but you're going to have to pack clothes. Mm -hmm. All right. So the, uh, the whole idea is, is that um, the kind of thoughts that humans can have is vast. But most of them are unwholesome. The kind of thoughts that a human can have that are completely and totally wholesome are very few. It's almost like the same thing as the number of lies or the number of things that you can say that is false is vast as compared to the number of things that you can say which is absolutely true. The example that I always give is uh, for the student is how old are you? How old are you? Yeah, how old uh, are you? 47. All right, now lie to me. How old are you? 43. Now lie to me again. How old are you? 27. Okay, so how about 300? How about 9,000? You can say anything if it's a lie. Mm -hmm. I'm minus 23. Okay. Okay, we can say anything if it's a lie. But the truth is very small. Just one of those numbers is true. All the rest of them are false. This is so remarkable when we say, okay, well, that's what we mean is, is that we have to start doing kind of a, uh, a, a search, a treasure hunt. 
because the treasure is is small among all of the vast belief systems and lies and um, hindrances and all that kind of stuff. All the unwholesome is vast compared to the wholesome, which is very small. And as we progress in meditation, we begin to see that what we used to think was wholesome. Now we begin to discern is that's not so wholesome after all. It's got some dangers in it. Now, the Buddha was very big on the idea that the reason that we do the things that we do is because we um, did get or expecting to get gratification from doing it. That we do things for gratification. We seek sensual pleasures. We do things like pick our nose when we pick our nose because we expect some value out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But it's not so easy to see the danger. Once we see the danger, then we can plot the escape. But until we see the danger, all we can see is the gratification. This is why we get stuck in doing things that are harmful is because we only see the gratification and we can't see the danger. So as we develop in our right view, that means that our discernment about figuring out what is wholesome, what is dangerous, et cetera, like that, is a skill to be developed over time. But we do know that we can start off with a few things that we can automatically see are unwholesome. And even though that we know that they're unwholesome, there'll be some times when it's necessary to do that in order to prevent something uh, else unwholesome. An example of that would be that uh, uh, here in Thailand, I'm going to have to do the visa on a regular basis. And so I need to do a bit of planning so that that goes off without a hitch. But it doesn't take much planning. And yet some people just burn and toil and mangle and whatever like that about those visas. A lot of work. Mm-hmm. All right. Exactly the same thing happens with uh, IRS at tax time. Pay mm-hmm. federal income taxes. Some people struggle with that tax uh, uh, return. And others, it's just a piece of cake. Nothing to it. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a mental attitude, which is the poor, the uh, superior attitude, the one who works and fusses and, and uh, uh, messes and is concerned with his tax return and the one who thinks it's a piece of cake. In that regard, is it, wouldn't it be better then for people who struggle and mess and toil with their life and, and redo and try to cheat here and there and wonder if they're going to get caught and all that kind of stuff, or someone who lives his life, oh, life's a piece of cake, easy enough. Why is it that the Western mind is, is that we choose the struggle when we can choose the easy way out? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. The answer is, is because we have been taught to struggle. That this is a generational tragedy. One generation of humans after another generation of humans teaches their children to be miserable. 
that it's all learned behavior one generation after another. And so we pick up the bad habits of our parents and then we give pass those bad habits on to our children. And this is well known by the psychologists. This is not something that's new. An example of that is, is that in, in families that have domestic violence, the children who were raised in a, a household that had domestic violence are more than likely going to be living in a household when they're adults that has domestic violence. Because they're going be, be, in the new case, the ones who were doing the violence. Mm-hmm. Because they learned about violence. Okay, so this is the way that we begin to understand that much of our unwholesome behavior, we learned as children. When we were really ignorant, we piled on all of that stuff and everybody that we heard, especially if we uh, were in danger, because when a child is in danger, which means the self-preservation instinct is going on, that means he's going to remember that event. He's going to remember the really dangerous events much more likely than he's going to remember uh, all of the, uh, the good events. An example of that is when I was in high school, when I first started riding motorbikes, I had several motorbike accidents. I remember those bike accidents, but I don't remember so much the acceleration of riding around town all day. Mm -hmm. We remember our tragedies. Okay, so now we've got a whole long list of tragedies that we use as a pass for us to use as a base for remembering. If we've got a bunch of garbage, then we're going to remember a bunch of garbage. We're going to have a bunch of garbage in the thoughts and in the mind. We're going to have garbage feelings associated with them. Those are all unwholesome. And so the whole teaching of the Buddha is that we need to remove these unwholesome thoughts by practice. We have to practice to sit there and to watch the mind and to recognize that any thought that comes up has to be judged. Is this thought worth having or not? And if it's not worth having, then we can throw it out. And put something in there that is worth having. This is the practice of Anapanasati over and over and over again. And that's why, and if you noticed, I haven't told you anything about formal meditation practice that we're talking about actually to remember, to wake up, to look at what's in the mind, and if it's unwholesome, to throw it out and put something wholesome in the mind. You can do that driving your car, walking down the street. You can do that riding a bus. You do this at any point in time. All you have to do is remember that society to wake up and to look at what you're doing. Well, most people, when they're out in the world, uh, the world is too much for them. And so what the Buddha recommends is to get ourselves into seclusion, to get away from the world. And when we get away from the world, what we find out is we brought the world with us anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so now that world, we have to start evaluating and throwing those thoughts out and start having wholesome thoughts. And so your practice is to begin to recognize for yourself, is this wholesome? Is this Wholesome. Now, there's an actual um, added ingredient into that, uh, but this is one's right effort. The Buddha talks about that one's right effort is to change the attitude or to change the, excuse me, to change the view from wrong view to right view 
and one's right effort is also to change our thought from one unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. This is the practice that we're starting. Now, the important point here is, is that the Buddha also in the Anapanasati Sutta recommends a particular kind of wholesome thought. And that is a thought that gladdens the mind, brightens the mind, brings the mind up. And uh, in several of the books that uh, uh, have attributed to the various lectures that Vikar Buddha Dasa has given, one of my favorites, I got it pegged, is way into page 217 in this book on Anapanasati, where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes the statement, this is the first thing that you should be doing. That's the problem with books. If you have a book that's organized with an introduction and whatnot like that, it's waiting until 200 pages in to tell you this is the first thing that you have to do. But that's how the book is written. So I can give you that in our first talk. The very first thing that we have to do is to learn to gladden the mind. To take the mind out of unwholesome states into wholesome states. And so we could say that, all right, if we're going to do noting, then the noting has to be an active skin in the game noting in the sense that if you're going to note what's in the mind, then as soon as you find out that what's in the mind is not wholesome, you throw it out. And you put something in the mind that is wholesome. And a lot of people say, well, I can't throw thoughts out of the mind. But they don't recognize that when they just said that, then they had just thrown out whatever thought they were having so that they could put that Mm. thought in. That the mind is like that, that it's almost like a conveyor belt. And whatever is in front of you on that conveyor belt, that's what's in the mind right now. But as soon as that conveyor belt moves, you've got a new mind moment. And you can put into the mind anything that you want to. The Buddha had a, um, a, a phrase that he used that he got started from the very beginning uh, when he was um, under the bow tree, when he was beginning to put together Patita Samapada and the Eightfold Noble Path and all of that. There is a key ingredient, a key point about this that he came up with. And that key is, aha, I see you, Mara. Well, that, aha, I see you, Mara. That's sati, to wake up. Number two, to take a look. To three, to investigate to the point of recognizing with discernment that this thought is unwholesome. And then the next thought that comes in is the gladdening of the mind. Aha, I see you. Aha, I caught you. Aha, I see you, Mara. And so we have just now changed the mind out of the unwholesome thought of Myra into the wholesome thought of, aha, I see you, Myra. Also in that regard, that when people are having thoughts, random thoughts, uh, the general idea is, is that this is my thought and I am the thought. And we attach to our thoughts as if our thoughts were worthwhile or useful or whatever like that without recognizing that almost all the thoughts that we do have were learned from someone else, generally from our parents. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, the kind of thoughts that we have, we attach to as if they're my thoughts, to in fact, no, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. But when it's my thought, it's like grasping or clinging to that thought. And when we wake up, the wake up is, aha, I see you, Mara. 
Normally, we live our lives like this, in suffering, in it. This is my thought. My thought is taking me, and whatever way that thought goes, I feel that way. I'm in it. I'm stuck. But the wake-up is to, aha, I see you, Mara. By doing that, we actually separate. I am no longer that thought. So I can have a thought about how miserable it is because I don't have my winky-wonky, and then I can wake up and say, aha, I see that. And I don't need that winky wonky right now anyway. And so this is the wake up. This is the gladdening of the mind. This is one of the key ingredients to Anapanasati that is also missing in the Mahasi method with the noting. It's because error how bad it is, that's what they're noting. Here, we're only noting it enough to where we can say, ah, you've got to change that. You've got to come out of the unwholesome and bring it into the wholesome so that you can begin to have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. Now, these kind of wholesome thoughts that we're talking about of the gladdening of the mind can actually begin to spark us up and make us feel better if they are real as opposed to what we call affirmations. You've probably heard of affirmations. I mean, libraries, book, uh, libraries full of books mm -hmm have been written on affirmations. And people will buy these self-help books. And mm -hmm. they'll read it. And while they're reading the book, they feel really good. But when they put the book back on the shelf, they forget all about it. Yep. Or the teenage girl will stand in the mirror in the morning and uh, looking in the mirror and telling herself, oh, you're the, you're the prom queen, or you're the most beautiful girl in town, and all of this kind of stuff, giving herself those affirmations. Deep down inside, she doesn't believe it. And so they're not really going to be of any value when she gets to school. When she gets to school, she'll be going to be back into the same old mentality because those affirmations she gave herself while looking in the mirror didn't stick because they weren't real. Here we're talking about doing something that's absolutely real in reality because it is reality and we know that this is real we can get great benefit from it by changing the mind from unwholesome into wholesome thoughts. And the kind of wholesome thoughts that we're going to have are the wholesome thoughts that make us feel good. So we would have thoughts like, as an example, wow, this feels good. Aha, I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore. Whatever the Myra was. So if I'm thinking about I got to go to work and, and I've got to do this, that, and the other, I got to make this report. And then I'm sitting and I'm saying, wait a minute, I'm not at work. I'm not, I don't have any reports right now. Why am I thinking about a report? Out. Get out of the mind, Mr. Report. And then I can say, wow, I don't have to think about that right now. What a relief that is. And so we start thinking about it in the sense of having relief, having comfortableness. We're actually going to uh, work with words that have to do with feeling safe and secure. Because when we're in an ordinary state of mind, we have thoughts that wind up uh, being fearful thoughts. And so we're going to now have intentional thoughts that are fearless thoughts. An example of that is there's no alligators in the room, there's no crocodiles, there's no boas, there's no pythons, there's no um, uh, rattlesnakes, 
you, the SWAT team is not busting down your door. You don't have any mafia bosses in your bedroom. You see what I'm talking about? Everything mm -hmm. is safe. You can go through what are the things that are dangerous for you, and you can recognize they're not here now. And because they're not here, there's no reason to be unsafe. And so we actually talk ourselves into the reality that this is a safe place in this moment, in this time. And we begin to feel safe. We also begin to say things like, this is good. This is nice. This is good enough. I don't need anything new. So we become comfortable. And also we become satisfied. In fact, this whole point about satisfaction is remarkable because we spend our whole lives being dissatisfied. This is actually possibly the very best definition of the word dukkha. Dukkha does not necessarily mean suffering. It means just being dissatisfied. So we're going to actually practice putting ourselves into a state of being satisfied. Which is basically third noble truth. Got no suffering. I'm not dissatisfied with anything. I'm completely satisfied with everything. And so we begin to work with this. Begin to say, uh, I'm comfortable, I'm secure, I'm satisfied, I'm safe, and everything is all right. And I've got no worries, no place to go, and nothing to do. The spring comes, and the grass goes by itself. So we get ourselves in this state of everything is okay. Everything is fine. Tell yourself a few jokes. Enjoy your life. Taking a deep breath. And in fact, this is the second part of one's right effort uh, that is uh, generally missed in the Western Mahasi method. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and the Buddha and Mahasi all make a big point of it is, is that the breath is not just to be watched is to be grabbed hold of, is to be seized. Just like we're seizing control of the mind, we're also seizing control of the breath, and we do that with the mind. What this means is that we're going to take, when we remember, when sati comes up, we're going to take a long, deep in-breath. In fact, we want sati on a deep in-breath, a long in-breath, and sati on a long out-breath. One breath in, sati. One long out-breath, sati. One long in-breath, sati. One long out-breath, sati. We begin to train like this so that we can remember using the breath to be here now, to be in the present moment, to not let the mind wander away, but to stay focused, to stay. And I use the word focus, and many people will think, ah, oh, you're talking about concentration again. No, actually, we're talking about it in the sense of being in the present moment is quite large to become in the senses. But most people spend their time in that sixth sense of the mind, chattering, talking, talking, talking. And what we're looking at doing is to stop talking to ourselves so much, especially in the sense of work to do, the past, the future, restlessness and all of those kind of thoughts that we normally have and kind and start having the kind of thoughts that are about this present moment like this is a good breath wow i like this one 
And just be in the present moment and start to enjoy. Remembering to take a long, deep breath. Remembering to take a long, deep out breath. Remembering to throw out unwholesome thoughts and remember to put in wholesome thoughts. This Ooh. is the basic practice of Anapanasati. And so this is all there really is to it. Now we can put it in into some context and whatnot like that, but um, we can talk about it in the sense of what people in the West refer to as formal sitting practice. We could use the word formal sitting practice uh, in in the way that is useful in the sense of making sure that we're away from the world in seclusion. So we go to a secluded spot, but the secluded spot could be off in the woods, could be in an empty hut, does not have to be in a meditation hall. But we do want to make sure that we're away from everything so that we can practice quietly. And the, and what we're going to practice is to watch these thoughts and remove unwholesome thoughts, thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about someplace else, and start having thoughts about what is happening right here, right now, especially the very best things that are happening right here, right now. Like, wow, this is nice. Everything is okay. No problems. And we want to continue working with those kind of thoughts until we can begin to control the mind. Control the mind to control the breathing so that you can have the kind of thoughts that you want to have. And this will take a little while, but it's worth practicing. So we're actually developing skills. Uh, all of these parts of the Eightfold Noble Path are skills to be developed. One's right effort is a skill to be developed. One's right sati is the major skill to be developed. One's right uh, view is to be developed. And when we keep doing this, there's something new that will happen. And that is, is that we can see, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can clean out the mind. Yes, I can throw out the past. Yes, I can get myself into a really nice state. And then that's when confidence starts to grow. And pretty soon the confidence grows to the point of saying, yes, I can do this. Then when it grows really strong, we can say no matter what happens with the mind, it doesn't matter how obstructive or what happens, I can get myself back into a really good state. I can feel good. I can be here now. I can see the way things really are. This is real confidence. This is actually in the April Noble Path, Sama Sankapa, which is translated as one right thought, but it's actually more than that. It's more like an attitude. The attitude of can do, the attitude I can do this. And so this is the actual right way of practicing Anapanasati, is to gladden the mind, to take unwholesome thoughts out and to put wholesome thoughts in to let the breathing become long and deep and slow. And having thoughts of no place to go, nothing to do, no work to do, nothing future, just this present moment is just great. Isn't this nice? Isn't this nice? Isn't this great? That's the kind of language we want to start having. So that we talk ourselves literally with reality 
into feeling marvelous. Now, how marvelous I feel. Don't you feel marvelous right now? Yep. Okay, that's the whole point is let yourself feel really good. Let yourself feel really marvelous. Let yourself feel really successful. This is what we mean by the lion's attitude, the lion. Buddha was a lion. That's the confidence of the uh, Samo Sankapa. Right attitude. So you can develop that. Now, one of the things that we can talk about is, is that how often do you practice it? Where do you do it? And all of that kind of stuff. And I would recommend, you see, in most meditation systems, they have the idea that sitting for a long period of time is of some value. But a way of looking at it is to say that you could sit for an hour. That means that every day you sit for an hour, that's 23 hours of hindrance. And maybe <laughs> one hour, but it's only partial hindrance. So uh, we're not looking at uh, any formal sitting practice to do anything other than getting us in the habit of doing something that we can then take out all day long. And for that reason, I would prefer to see students practicing five or six times a day for 10 minutes, six times a day, or maybe even if you're really good at it, uh, for six minutes, 10 times a day, mm -hmm. rather than for 60 minutes in a row. Why? Because the mind's going to get tired. Uh, people talk about going in deep into meditation. We're not trying to go deep into meditation. We're Brightening the mind, we're getting gladdened, we're being in the senses, and we're here now. We're becoming awake. In many cases, you could see that what is normally referred to in Western systems of meditation is not waking up, it's going to sleep in a way, it's going deep into meditation. And many mm -hmm. times, it's just deep into thought and deep into unhappiness. Because they're just they're not cleaning out the mind, they're not finishing the hindrances. And so the first job that we have to do is to get the mind free from the hindrances, to get out of the whole unwholesome and have wholesome thoughts. Only then can we make any progress. So that's what I would recommend to practice a few times a, a day rather than prolonged settings. Uh, then, in fact, possibly the longest time to sit would be 20 minutes. The human attention span doesn't last longer than about 20 minutes for most of us. And so practicing for about 20 minutes would be enough. But the most important thing is to get yourself into a really good state. If you're in a really, really good state, then it doesn't matter how long you're practicing, so long as you're in a really good state. Mm -hmm. When you come out of a good state, then there's no reason to practice anymore if you're not going to be in a good state. So getting yourself into a good state, that's the important thing. Getting the mind wholesome. After that, we can talk about, well, what do we do then? The answer to that is once we get the mind completely wholesome, then the noting that we're going to be doing is going to be only noting wholesome things. Okay. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? As opposed it to is. just noting. And then we've got to note all kinds of crap. 
But when we have only wholesome thoughts <laughs> in the mind, now what we're noting is going to be all wholesome. Makes much more sense. Well, that's what the, the Buddha taught. That's what uh, Mahasi taught. That's what Goenka taught. But that's not what's happening in Western Buddhism. No, not at all. Because they don't have that most important ingredient of removal of the hindrances and making the mind completely wholesome. So do you think you got somewhere to go now? You've got a, 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 a method of practice that you can start with. I do. Um, everything you said makes perfect sense. Um, my general before tonight was I would usually, my daily practice was when I get up first thing in the morning, I would sit for 30 minutes. And then when I got home from work, I would, before I would start my, you know, my studies, I would sit for 30 minutes. The afternoon sit was generally more, I was constantly dozing off. I was trying to stay awake, but I was constantly dozing off. And so I finally just got tired of doing that. I would just try to make it, you know, lower a little bit, to like maybe 15 minutes. All right. Well, we can talk about that dozing too, because you can see that um, number one, when the mind gets tired, it's going to go to sleep. And yep. one of the ways that it gets tired is because we're not breathing well. If you start breathing well and taking long, deep in-breaths and long, deep out-breaths, you're going to energize the body. It's not going to be so sleepy. Okay. When you say uh, long, is that like doing it, letting, letting it go naturally or just trying to start off doing it long and then letting it go naturally? We, we want to, the answer to that is we're going to actually control the breath. We want to do, uh, we're going to develop two skills at the same time. One is the skill of sati, and the other is the skill of breathing well. Okay. So we're going to remember to breathe well. Now, what do we mean by breathing well? Well, one of the ways, one of the qualities of breathing well is that we become relaxed. That part of anapanasati is the relaxation of the body as well as waking up the body. And so if you are taking deep breaths, then that helps relax the body because it's throwing out the poisons of the carbon dioxide and all of the other stuff on the out breath, as well as taking a deep in breath and getting a lot of oxygen. But with the Mahasi method and the other practices of meditation, because they don't uh, emphasize seizing and taking control of the breath and having mindfulness of each breath. They just hear, says, just watch the breath. And if the mind wanders away, come back and start watching the breath again, which means they've got no skin in the game. So if, you're th if you use the analogy of a, um, a big sports arena, like a football team. I think in, in Tennessee, there's a lot of people who like football, Tennessee balls and all of that. Oh, yeah. All right. So there's two kinds of people in the, uh, there. There are those who are spectating, watching the action on the play, and then there are the players. Who is more likely to want to have his eye on the ball? The spectators or the players? Generally, I would say the players. All right. 
if someone is going to make a touchdown, who's going to make the touchdown, the players or the spectators? Players. All right. But why are the spectators in when the touchdown is made? Why are they jumping up and down and screaming and cheering? The answer is, well, that's why they came to the football game, was to feel good. And so they want that guy to make it. But while he's just running around the field, they're probably not paying much attention to the ball. Yeah, and they always say, we scored when the team scored. Right, when the team scored. And they almost think about it as my football team. They do. My, my team, right? If he goes to the, um, at the end of the game, if he goes into the locker room and says, hey, guys, you did a great job. My team won. They're going to throw him out of there. They don't know him. Yeah. <laughs> not to them. He doesn't own that team. He only thinks so in his own mind. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's unwholesome thought. My team. Because it's wrong. It's not real. He does not own that team. It is not his. And yet almost everyone in the fan of the uh, in that stadium will have those thoughts for one team or the other. This is my team. That's not my team. But the reality is, is that that team doesn't belong to anybody, especially not to the owner of the team. No. Doesn't, doesn't belong to him either. It is all delusion about this ownership. Yeah, I love watching football, but I've never understood the whole concept of like um, I used to go to um, back when I used to drink. I would go to sports bars and watch games, and sometimes you know I have to get up, go to the bathroom, go get something. I come back, I hear a bunch of yelling. What happened? Oh, we just scored. I would always think, who is this we you're talking about? You didn't do anything. You just sat there and watched it. Uh, The Mm -hmm. individual is the one who just scored but you know some people they really get into it all right so now that we've really thoroughly investigated this analogy we can recognize that a lot of people who are practicing meditation do it like spectators oh okay and we need to actually practice it like we're the we're the team like we're we're on the the uh uh the playing field Mm mm-hmm you have to actually take control of your breath. This is not a spectator sport. This is you got to put some skin in the game. This is one's right effort. Okay, that makes perfect sense now. Yes, okay. So this is where we're going with this. You can see also an example is it says somebody's playing a video game and you're just watching it over their shoulder. It's a little bit entertaining, yeah. but anything will drag you away from it. But if you're playing that game yourself, Mom can come up and yell in your ear and you're not going to pay any attention because you're in that game. You've got it. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. That's the kind of practice that we're trying to put into is we're trying to put some skin in the game. Got to take control of the mind. Got to take control of the breath. And this okay. is the kind of teaching that is not taught. And and I think that in Asia... That's it's almost it doesn't have to be taught because anybody would just kind of understand that. But in the West, we've got this whole spectator sport mentality. Yeah, they do. And so the important point for you to understand is that you this is your meditation. You're the one who's got to do that. You've got to take control of your breath. You've got to take control of your mind. 
You're the one who has to monitor the mind and make sure only wholesome thoughts come in. And as you keep doing that, you'll get really developed in the skills so that you'll know more and more what's a wholesome thought and what's not wholesome. And so this is the way to get started. All right. All right. So I guess rule of thumb for just starting tomorrow morning when I wake up, just instead of spending 30 minutes straight, do 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, but not trying okay. to just do it all at once. Exactly. Not doing it all at once. But but the other point is you said but you don't have to wait until tomorrow morning. You can take that deep breath right now. Yes, that's true. And as soon as we finish the conversation, you can go get a cup of coffee. And while you're getting that coffee, while you're pouring out the water, you can take that deep breath and say, my, isn't this marvelous? Mm-hmm. So we want to start putting the practice throughout the day. We want to remember to do this. And we'll talk about it a little bit later, but the important point about sati is, is that sati is a skill that we need at certain periods of time in our life. There will be crises, little and big, where we need to wake up. We need to know what's going on. But we're lost in thought instead. Mm -hmm. So we need to practice sati so that we can practice it to get it when we need it the most, like when the boss is coming down the hall or when the cop is flashing his red lights behind us on the highway. Mm -hmm. Times like that. OK, when we need it most, that's when people lose it. Oh, exactly. OK, so this is why we're going to practice often and practice in a way to remember this breath and remember that so that we can uh, have our uh, wholesome thought processing going just at the time when we need it most. An example is when the cop is stopping you out on the highway, you better not be afraid of him. You better be able to meet him in a friendly and happy manner. If you're freaked out, he'll freak out. And the next thing you know, you might be dead. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, this is why sati is so valuable, so important, and such an indefinite skill to be developed. That is, every breath has to be an uh, intentionally long, deep breath. Every out-breath has to be intentionally a long, deep out-breath. Every one that you can remember. This will help develop that sati. Okay. Okay, you ready? I'm glad that you called. I hope to see you again soon. Oh, I look forward to it. Many more. All right. Okay. Well, uh, once or twice a week will be good. Okay. And like I said earlier, Fridays are generally the best time because that's when I'm off the weekends and that's when I'm got plenty of time. That would be great. All right. Well, I look forward so, to it. All right. Well, we'll finish this call now and we'll see you soon. All right, I will see you soon.